there? It really is good to be And we're not saying that to make you feel bad if you're not with us this morning. Um, we certainly would invite you to come and be with us. We think it's, it's best to be together in God's house. We understand that it's hard at times and that there might be stuff that keeps you from being here. Um, but we want to invite every of us. So if you're watching online, come and check, check out what God's doing here. We're not a consumer church, but we do think we got something pretty good going here because we're with Jesus. And his presence is good, his word is good, his people are good, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing you. So 9 and 11 o'clock, um, online at 11, feel free to invite people. Like, I would love to have the problem of having too many people here, whether it's because we're limited by the government and how many people we can have, or just because there's too many people here. Wouldn't that be great to, to have a problem? We'll add a service. And all my staff is like, Yay! We got, we got all Sunday, so we can add as many as we need to be with Jesus to accommodate what God wants to do in the earth. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you're like, oh, that's more work. Hey, look, what would, it, what would we be willing to give to see the presence of God invade people's lives? What would we be willing to endure to sacrifice on a regular basis to see that? Think about it for a minute. How many of you remember the uh, craze in the late 80s and early 90s of wooden playgrounds? How many of you remember that? How, <laughs> my fa- somebody just asked, is it over? And um, my favorite one that was in Ellicottville. Do you remember the one in Ellicottville at the, pl- at the school there on the way to Allegheny State Park? Am I the only one? It was the biggest. It was the best. It was shiny and bright and new. And then we discovered a few years later, these probably weren't the greatest idea, right? Splinters, and they, they built them like three, four, five stories high, which is not good for playgrounds and kids and you know, they, they, they were cushioned with rocks. Who thought that rocks were a good idea to cushion playgrounds? Like pebbles, right? And you remember being either the, the recipient or the initiator of the, the rock war, right? And parents, how many of you remember, like, your kids coming home just dusty? You're like, where did all this rock dust come from? It's because your kids are rolling around in rocks on wooden playgrounds all day. Now, we participated fully in that here at New Covenant. Uh, we actually had a playground that we built. It has been since torn down because it was a menace in a bunch of different ways. Um, that we won't get into on a Sunday morning. Uh, some of you are laughing because you know. But in this playground, we thought, hey, let's build something for kids, and the elements that we will do, let's theme it around the Bible, right? How many, if you're going to build a church playground, you're like, well, yeah, let's theme it around the Bible. It just so happens that we chose four elements for this playground. The one really never materialized. It was supposed to be a mound. How many of you remember the mound that was out there? It was supposed to be like, like the Sermon on the Mount mount where you could you know, put a teacher on top and kids would gather around in the grass and everybody would just experience that, just like being with Jesus, although it never happened because they built the mound with like rocks and tried to cover it with dirt and the rocks became exposed and the grass never grew. It was never a good place to be. So that element was gone. But then the other three elements of this playground, we chose to make elements of God's judgment. The three other elements. There was the pyramids, right, representing Egypt. They were, you know, pyramids that had uh, tire swings in the middle. That was kind of cool, and platforms to swing around on. Um, But the pyramids represented Egypt that was judged by the ten plagues, the judgment of God. We had the Tower of Babel, right? I don't know why we thought to put that there. This was a tower that we tried, that human beings tried to build, that God judged the earth and scattered the people through through, uh, confusing our languages. But hey, let's build a Tower of Babel, right? That symbol of Babylon the Great. I don't know. And then we decided to build what some people would consider a good kids thing that was Noah's Ark. And just by sheer design, it was a problem because it was, my understanding, it was designed to have the slats go up and down. 
but they thought it was easier when they built it to go horizontal. Well, how many of you know when you put wooden horizontal slats on something, kids are going to climb it? And so here we are, like two, three stories up. Well, two stories. In my mind, it's three, but I was little. Two stories up with the ability to jump into a pile of rocks. That is not a good idea. But the, the worst idea was that we put these symbols of God's judgment in there because we oftentimes represent Noah's Ark as a, a plaything. We have cute little videos about it. We sing about God you know, sending a floody floody and like you know, the animals and you could buy arks. And even people who are not necessarily religious talk about this and they, they see, see it as a children's story or a plaything. But here's the reality. The account of Noah and the flood is not a child's story. Like, we, we represented an ark with these, or in art with these cute little animals. We had a, a mural in our nursery, which was, was beautifully hand-painted of Noah's ark. And it was all great except for the menacing jaguar. Anybody remember the menacing jaguar? Like, there was something in that jaguar's eyes that said, the whole world's about to go down. <laughs> and maybe that's why we put it in the nursery. Like, hey, listen, you better behave or... But it, it, it's a... It's a a worldwide flood is an absolutely horrible thing. There was some artwork, and you can look it up. It's a wood cutting or an engraving by Gustav Moore. How many of you have ever seen it? Called the da- I think it's called the Deluge. I can't say the word. But basically, it's, it's, it's artwork. It's black and white. And it's depicting a, a lone, solitary rock in the middle of a flood with a, a tiger and its cubs on it. And the, one of the cubs is in the tiger's mouth. Uh, uh, some people on the rock and a couple desperately drowning and pushing their children onto the rock while other people are trying to hold their children up and swim and drown. And the, even the vultures can't land. There's no place for them to land. It's a horrible thing to think about. An entire world of people and all of creation that God made destroyed and wiped out. In fact, it's uncomfortable for us so much so that a few years ago I, I was watching a, a comedy or a, a bit by Joe Rogan. And I don't know what you think about Joe Rogan. I don't know if you even know who Joe Rogan is. I wouldn't necessarily recommend listening to his stuff. People like him because he's willing to talk about almost anything and he's on one side or the other, kind of sometimes back and forth. But he was, he's also a comedian and an MMA commentator. Great at, at his jobs. But in this com- comedy thing, he was talking about Noah's Ark. And he was ripping on people who would believe that God saved the human race through a boat and a worldwide flood. But what, what he was doing was he was addressing something and kind of tearing down the, the idea of, of God or the truth through humor, but also dealing with the uncomfortableness of a God that judges Dealing with uh, uh, the thought of maybe what some people would say is a hateful or a vengeful God that that we really can't ignore in the account of Noah. Because this flood is nothing that we can ignore. And it's really no laughing matter. We're going through an account of God's covenant with human beings. And we're going to look at that this morning through the lens of Noah and God's covenant with Noah. But first, kind of let's set the stage for this. Let's set the stage for the account. Genesis chapter 6, 5 through 8. We're going to set the stage. We'll talk a little bit. We won't read it all about what happened because I think a lot of us kind of know. Then we're going to look at what happened afterwards. First is this. Genesis chapter 6. You can turn with me in your Bibles to it. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And here's the extent of it. He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. 
So the Lord was sorry He ever made them and put them on the earth. And it broke His heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the, even the, birds of the sky. Sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. God, as we look at your word this morning, as we see your assessment of sin, as we see your perfect execution of judgment upon that, and as we see how Noah found favor and covenant with you and how we still live in the midst of that covenant today, God, I pray that we would see you for who you are. That we would know you. And we find favor through Jesus. Amen. We're talking about the covenants of God, and we're going to talk about how God is a covenant making and covenant keeping God. And even in looking at this judgment, this thing that some of us would be very uncomfortable assigning to God, we will see his goodness and his faithfulness because he's not only a covenant making God, but he's a covenant keeping God. He keeps his promises to his people. Last week we looked at how God made covenant with Adam and Eve and it was a covenant of authority and how Adam and Eve jacked it up big time and how God is still in the midst of us breaking our covenants, in the midst of us ruining things, he always has a redemptive answer. And even in this, when he's looking at the world and he's seeing that he's sorry that he made it, he has a redemptive answer and that is the account of Noah. Genesis 6-9, let's pick up the account. It says, and this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. The only blameless person living on the earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on the earth was corrupt. And so God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. Verse 18, but I will confirm my covenant with you, speaking to Noah. So enter the boat, you and your wives, and your sons and their wives. In verse 22, so Noah did everything exactly as the Lord commanded him. So God speaks to Noah and he says, and most of us are familiar with this, chapter 7 kind of outlines it, that God tells Noah to build a boat or an ark, not necessarily really a boat, but kind of a container for all of human life and that he was going to save and all of the life of creatures that he was going to save. He tells him to build it and we know it, chapter 7, they come two by two, Noah puts them in the ark, actually seven by seven for some of the clean animals that were for sacrifice. And for 40 days, and for four, God shuts the ark door for 40 days and 40 nights. There's rain coming from the sky. There's water coming up from the earth. And the entire earth is flooded, even the highest mountaintops. And Noah and his family and the animals have to wait. And they wait and they wait. And five months after that, the ark rests on Mount Ararat. 
And then you know the story where, or many of us know the story where he releases a dove and the dove flies and comes back. He's like, well, there's nowhere to land. And then he releases a dove and over time he, he finds the dove brings back an olive branch. And where most of us are familiar with that as a symbol of peace. We've seen the dove with the olive branch. That's what we use as a symbol of peace. That's the hope that we take out of this. Even people who are non-believers take that as a symbol of peace. And here's the aftermath. So we see what happened. We're not going to focus necessarily on that. But let's look at what happens after Noah and his family and these animals are saved. It says in chapter 8, verse 20 and 22, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And there he sacrifices burnt offerings, the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. Note that. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. And then pick up in Genesis chapter 1. Sorry, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons. And he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All the animals of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a felmal human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds and the livestock and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth, Yes, I'm confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. And never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds as a sign of my covenant with you with all the earth. Then I'll send clouds to cover the earth and a rainbow will appear in the clouds. And I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. And when I see the rainbow in the clouds, I'll remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on the earth. And then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is a sign of the covenant I'm confirming with all the creatures of the earth. And so God takes his people and saves them through the flood and saves them through the judgment. He puts them back into the earth on dry ground. And it isn't just like he did that for his purposes, but then he renews his covenant with them. And I want to look at that covenant just briefly. Here are the highlights of that covenant. We read it all, but it's, hard, it's sometimes easy to just kind of read through and miss what he's actually saying. Here are the highlights of the covenant, or a summary of the covenant. First is this. Like Adam, Noah and his family were commanded to fill the earth. Notice that the language is almost exactly the same. He says, be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Number two, the animal kingdom was now going to be in fear of humankind. Up until this point, we had large creatures, dinosaurs and other large things, living at the same time as human beings. And Scripture tells us that 
because of the evilness in the earth, many people were afraid of these animals. And God says, I'm going to flip the script because of my goodness, because of my plan to see the earth transformed through the seed of a woman. I'm going to redeem humankind and I'm going to change that. The effect of that sin that brought destruction through wild animals and people being afraid. How many of you would be afraid of dinosaurs? Should be, right? He says, I'm going to flip the script. And now the animal kingdom will be in fear from humankind. He says in verse 3, let me make sure I get this right. Oh, there's new food. I couldn't read it right. There's new food. How many of you like covenants that are sealed with new food? That's what God says. He says, up until this time, I've given you what to eat? Fruit and vegetables. And now, hallelujah, he, he tells us we can be omnivores. So the bacon that you had this morning, well, not then, a little bit later in the book of Acts, but up until this point, there was a certain type of food, and he says, as part of my new covenant, as part of my goodness, and as part of sustaining human beings, and we could have a whole debate about that, whether or not you need meat to sustain you. He says, but to sustain human beings, I'm going to give you a new source of food. It was God's goodness that provided that. It's part of the covenant. That's an easy one to talk about. The next one is more difficult to talk about. He institutes capital punishment. If you note the very first murder, Cain murdering Abel, what was the judgment of God upon Cain? It was not the death penalty. He says, you're going to wander. You're going to be separated from the people of God. You're going to be separated from my presence. That was judgment enough. But God says, in this moment, because of the violence that was in the earth, because of the lack of regard for human life that was in the earth, He says, I'm going to change the covenant again. And the punishment for murder will not be reserved for me only. I will actually give some of that authority to people to execute. And that wasn't a pun. He says, I want you to be part of this. Up until this point, if somebody killed someone else, there was not a punishment of death for that. He says, from now on, if an animal or a person kills another person, their blood will be required. They ought to be killed. And it wasn't because he disregarded human life. It's because God regarded human life so preciously that he gave that authority to human beings to defend human life. He said, I want you to recognize the value of life created in my image. It's part of the covenant. He said uh, that there would be no more floods like the one he sent. There's still floods, but the earth is not destroyed by them. And then he said, here's the symbol or the sign that I would not send another flood, a rainbow. And he says that it is a sign of his covenant, but not just a sign of his covenant, but a sign of his, verse 16, everlasting covenant. This is not a one-time deal. This is not for Noah and his sons. This is not an Old Testament covenant or a covenant until the next covenant is made. This is an everlasting covenant that God makes with human beings. Just like he made a covenant with Adam and Eve that affects all of us for authority in the earth, and he's fulfilling that covenant, he says, I'm going to give an everlasting covenant that I will not destroy the earth this way again. That's a summary of the covenant, but what about the effects of the covenant? I don't want to know just what it was. I want to know how it matters to me. Here's what it is. First of all, sin was identified. Oftentimes, we are not honest with God about the sin in, it, uh, the sin in our lives and its effects. 
God says this, everything they thought or imagined was bent towards evil from childhood. And I want you to notice something. He said that before the flood, and he said that after the flood. He said that about all of the people on the earth, and he said that about Noah and his sons who came from a righteous line. We must be honest, and we must be willing to identify sin as sin, and identify the effects of sin, not only in our own lives individually, but on the culture, and our families, and our church. But we have to start with ourselves. Just as an illustration, I was listening to a podcast this week with Steve Weatherford, the fittest man in the NFL. He was a kicker for the Giants when they won the Super Bowl. If you're going to the IM4 conference, he's going to be one of the speakers. And he was interviewing Ivy Marsh, our good friend. And they were talking about a bunch of different things. It's a great podcast. If you're a Facebook friend, you can see I posted it. I encourage you to take a listen to it. But one of the things that they talked about was this being, Pastor Ivy talked about, this is the first generation of men in their 20s who have completed their adolescence, every stage of their adolescence, with access to pornography on their very own phone. Free, always available pornography. And this is the first time we can start looking at the effects of that sin. This is just an illustration. It could be true for almost any sin that comes into our lives. We, we must understand and be willing to look at the effects. And here's what the effects are for a generation of 20-year-olds. First off, they don't know how to relate to women. Because women are just objects that look good and satisfy us. We need to recognize that as an effect of pornography in our lives. That we don't even know how to be relational with one another. We treat each other like objects. That devalues human life. But there's other effects. Men, because for whatever reason, as as they've studied this, uh, young men in their 20s are not producing testosterone at the same level that men were before this availability of pornography. It, It does something to our actual chemistry. And so we actually have men in their 20s that are struggling with ED. You know, the little blue pill that fixes that? Men in their 20s are struggling because of the effects of sin. And it wasn't given to us that way. This is a harmless sin. This is something that's just for you you and your imagination. Nobody's you know, being harmed by this. The people that took those pictures, they wanted to. It doesn't hurt anybody. But here's the truth. It, we must be honest about sin and its effects in our lives. It ruins our relationships. It ruins our bodies. It ruins and breaks down our societies. And again, this is not just about pornography. It's about every sin. If we are not honest about the sin in our lives of pride, and of dependence on other things, and of greed, or whatever it is, if we are not unforgiveness, if we are not honest about its effects, we will see its effects grow and grow and grow until our society completely breaks down. We're in the midst of that right now. First off, because of the effects of the covenant, sin was identified, but here's the great news. Sin was dealt with. It was judged. And we often think of judgment as not a good thing. Listen, if sin is bad and it's destructive and it brings about destructive things into our lives, we should be glad when it's identified and judged. Because it produces the life that God wants for us. Instead of running away from it, we should welcome it. Instead of thinking that God is harsh, we should see Him as a loving Father who cares for His children well. 
Sin was judged and it was dealt with in a way for God to continue His plan of salvation in the earth. It seemed as though, based on what we read here, that because of the violence and this inclination towards sin and the pervasiveness of evil, human beings were not long going to survive on this earth. Satan was winning. Remember, God has a plan to see His kingdom come through the seed of a woman. And society had completely broken down. And so God in His goodness did something new. And he made new rules to preserve life. First of all, we were protected from fallen nature. We had protection from the animals. Not only were they not going to harass us anymore, we would start harassing them. And the main and primary way we would harass them is we would start to eat them. But it was protection from fallen nature. God gave us new and sustaining source of food. It was protection from fallen man. A protection from murder by instituting the death penalty. It was, it was a protection. That was a protective order that God gave. And it was protection from the judgment that would come to a fallen world. God would not destroy the world by flood again. It doesn't mean that God will not destroy the earth again. But it foreshadows a coming judgment that God will have even in our world even after Christ, but it shows that in that judgment He has a plan for humanity and He has a plan to see His kingdom come and His will be done. He has a plan for you and I, the, the righteous ones, to fill the earth with His glory. Notice the similar language. He gives it to Noah. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. He's still calling us to live in that in light of what Christ has done for us. Because here's the truth. Sin was dealt with, but it wasn't totally dealt with. If you read the rest of the account, right after this, Noah plants a vineyard. And he grows grapes. And out of the grapes he makes wine. And out of the wine he, wine he gets drunk. And he goes into his tent. And as drunk people, I guess, are wont to do, he's stripped down naked in his tent. And his son came in and made fun of him. Actually saw him naked and went out and told his brothers and made fun of him. And the sin process continued with the drunkenness and with the dishonor. And it, it had effects on their line. Two of his sons decided to honor him. But we see that sin, even when it's dealt with, is not completely dealt with until it's dealt with by the Savior. This illustrates the need not only for God to do judgment and to bring uh, a righteous people through, but it's, a, it's His need to give us a Savior that will personally save us from the destructive nature of sin in our lives. And He did that through Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is faithful. If you want to know the main point of this entire account, it is this. That God is faithful even in times of radical change and transformation in the earth. There was an eruption of change. How many of us have dealt with an eruption of change over the last year? In every part of our society, there's an eruption of change, but we can trust that God is faithful in the midst of that. Maybe it's an eruption of destruction. We've seen that in our earth and with wars and even in our own society being stripped and ripped apart by the effects of sin. We can trust that God is faithful. He's faithful to His promises and He's faithful to His covenants. There's, a, there, there's been an eruption of a loss of control. Right? How many of you have, have looked around and said, this is not the world I grew up in? And we mourn that, but what we can trust is even in the midst of it, God will be faithful to His people. If He could be faithful to His people when the earth was destroyed by a flood, He can be faithful to us. 
And he could even be faithful when we lose control because there's going to come a time of the eruption of the goodness of God and the power of God. And if we want control all the time, we're going to be really, really upset when that happens. Because how many of you know when God does what God wants to do, we lose control? How many of you are control freaks like me? You just, you like control. Control's good. The problem is we even think that about God. We don't say we think that about God, but we think that about God. God asks us to do something. I don't know if I want to do that. Why can't we trust a good God who's always faithful? Because it's uncomfortable because we like control. And control in that sense is sin. That's taking onto ourselves something that's God's. And so in the midst of this, we can trust Him to be faithful. God will be faithful. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is teaching about this. And He says there's going to come a time when the Son of Man comes back and it will be sudden. Here's what He says. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time of Noah till the time He entered His boat and the flood came and destroyed them all. See, sometimes when we think about Jesus returning and dealing with sin, we get a little bit scared because we know that there's judgment involved in that. But here's what we can trust, that God will be faithful. We think, oh, I might miss it because there are people that are partying. There are people that are giving themselves to banquets. It was the same as in Noah's day. But God was faithful to Noah. God gave him a heads up. God gave him a warning. God called him out from the people. Because here's the truth. God's people are not scheduled for judgment. God has judged Jesus on our behalf. He is, he is making us righteous. He has dealt with our sin and we are righteous and He's making us righteous. But here's the truth. You and I are not scheduled for judgment. Some of us are uncomfortable with that because we know we need judgment. Jesus has paid the penalty for you and I. Isaiah 54, 9-10 says this, Just as I swore in the time of Noah that I would never again let the flood cover the earth, now I swear that I will never again be angry and punish you. This is God speaking to His people. Speaking to the people of Israel, but also to us who have been grafted in. For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then My faithful love for you will remain. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord who has mercy on you. You and I are not destined for destruction. We're not destined for judgment because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're destined to live in the blessing of God's, as God's covenant people. So how do we ex- access the covenant? Very briefly. If you're taking notes, f- write down five things. I'll give you five verses. First of all, we access the covenant. Not earn the covenant, but access the covenant. We access the covenant like Noah did through righteousness. Genesis 6-9, we read it already, but it deserves repeating. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man and the only blameless person living on the earth at this time. Was Noah righteous and blameless because he didn't do anything wrong? No, he was righteous because of what God had done for him. And the truth is this, we are righteous because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We access this covenant, and in fact, we access a new and a better covenant, Scripture says. In addition to this everlasting covenant, we have a new covenant that we access through righteousness. And it's a righteousness we cannot buy for ourselves, we cannot earn for ourselves, we cannot make for ourselves. It's a righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us. Second way that we access the covenant is through faith. Noah accessed the covenant through faith. Hebrews 11.7 says this, It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. 
By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. How was Noah's righteousness, or his faith, displayed? It was displayed in obedience to God. Noah had faith that even though God was telling him about stuff that had never happened before, some people believe that, it, that because of the way the earth was set up and the waters that were in the deep and the firmament or the, the large amount of waters that covered the earth, that the earth was a completely different, we had a completely different atmosphere than we have it now. We didn't have weather patterns like we have now. In fact, some people would posit that there was so much moisture available in the air and so much waters that came up from the earth that it had never rained before. Certainly, we know that there had never been that much water coming out of the sky and there would have never have been that much there has never been that much water that has burst out from the earth enough to cover the entire earth and so noah who's who's hearing from god about stuff that has never happened before completely out of the norm for what he's experienced for hundreds of years of his life at this point he says i'm going to destroy the earth this way and he's like okay and i want you to build a giant boat or a giant box to put every, every animal in. Okay. And I'm going to bring these animals and you and your family are going to work on this for years. It wasn't like they just cobbled a boat together. This took years and years and years. He acted by faith regularly counter to what nature said, counter to what society around him said and believed. He acted in faith. We access the covenant when we hear what God says and we put it into practice. He ac- Noah accessed the covenant three through relationship. The rest of verse 9 says this, he walked in close fellowship with God. We cannot access the covenant of God apart from relationship with Him. Apart, with fe- apart from fellowship with Him. This is not a self-help movement. This is not you and I getting it done, being the best we could be. This is us recognizing that in fellowship with God, we are transformed. In fellowship with God, we have access to the covenant. In walking closely with God, we have the ability to rise above the destruction of sin in the world around us, and we can access the covenant of God if we are willing to walk in close fellowship with Him. I heard something this morning while I was driving in. A preacher was connecting the... the, the um, he was connecting faith... Sorry, he was connecting prayer with sin. And when our, prayer, when our sin life increases, our prayer life decreases. It's just it's the way it works. And when our prayer life increases, our sin life decreases. And so as we walk with God, as we're in fellowship with Him, the things in our lives, the destructive nature of sin is broken. Verse 4, or sorry, point 4, Noah accessed covenant through worship. What did he do right when he got off the boat? We read it already, chapter 8.21. The Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. Noah built an altar and he worshipped the Lord. Think about this. What is worship? We think about it as singing. This is Noah being all in with everything he's got. Remember, he's only got two of every animal and seven of all the clean animals. He's got seven of the clean animals that were useful for sacrifice, and he killed them on an altar. Have you ever met a doomsday prepper? A doomsday prepper knows how many freeze-dried meals they have and how long it will last them. And they can do the calculation in their mind in seconds if you walk into their house and try to get some. 
If somebody comes over and they're like, oh, if I feed them this food, then that means my family won't have X amount. Like, you know what I'm saying? And here's Noah saying, it doesn't matter. Even though this is all I got, he's all in with what he has. That's what worship to the Lord is. We access the covenant when we go all in with everything that we've got. When we realize that he is God, the provider, and we don't get to just stand back and reserve it to ourselves. We say, God, everything I have has been given to you. You have saved me and everything that I have for life and human life, you provided for me, and I'm just going to lay it back at your feet and worship you with it. And when we do that, it is a sweet-smelling offering to the Lord. And he remembers his covenant. Not he forgets, but you know what I'm saying. We access the covenant through worship. And the last thing as the, wor- as the worship team comes is this. Others could have and currently can have access to the covenant through warning and preaching. In 2 Peter 2.5 it says this, And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Peter, writing on this side of Jesus, on this side of relationship with God through Jesus, on this side of atonement, on this side of all of God's wrath being taken by Jesus, on this side he writes about God's judgment. What was he writing about? If you look in 2 Peter, you'll see Peter writing about the culture that they lived in. He said, listen, in the church and in the world, not just the world, he says in the church and in the world, here's what we see. We see false teaching. People coming up with their own ideas that lead people away from God. He see, we see people well-trained in greed. How many of you know it's one thing to be greedy, it's a whole other thing to be well-trained in greed? He says, this isn't just the world. This is the world and the church. He's saying, we see that these people who, are, who delight in deception, they love to tell lies. Lies are the easiest thing. And not only do they tell the lies, they actually enjoy them. I was talking with my daughter. We had a ride yesterday. And she was just talky, 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 talky. And uh, I don't know how we got on it, but we started talking about tricking people. And I said, oh, I have a story about it. And I, I got to tell the story of the boy who cried wolf, but I made it long and, like, exciting. And so, like, by the third time the little boy cried wolf, like, she was laughing right along. Because I said, you know, the little boy cried wolf, and all the people came to save him, and he went, ha, ah, I got you. I tricked you. And she just, she thought it was the funniest thing. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to let her down when I tell her the end of the story. Because, like, she was, like, identifying with people, tricking people. And I could tell after I finished the story, I'm like, I think I just crushed her, like, I have to hug her a little bit more today. and like, But there's something about loving lies. And, and he's speaking to a people in the midst of a culture, even in the church, that love deception. A, a culture full, the Scripture says, of wickedness. Full of shameful, shameless and shameful immorality. People who commit adultery with their eyes. Who are into twisted sexual desires. This is what Scripture says. He's speaking to a peace. He's talking about God's judgment of Noah. And he's saying God is doing this even in our world because it is the same way. He says that they just are into all these twisted sexual things. Does that sound like the culture that we live in? But here's the truth. Noah, it says, warned the world of God's righteous judgment. While he was building an ark, while he was finding favor with God while God was willing to, to bring him and his family through and to save the world through them. It wasn't like Noah was just saying there, hey suckers, I'm glad I'm in, but sorry you're not. 
He was sharing with the world. He was warning the world. Some verses say he was preaching to the world about what God was about to do. In other words, I believe that if there had been others who responded to that, they would have been saved on the ark. They could have put an addition on. Whatever it took. And what have we been called to do? We've been called not only to live in the goodness of a faithful God who keeps His covenants to us, but we have been invited like Noah is to invite the world in. Because the truth is this, we have Jesus Christ. We don't just stand up and say, hey, God's going to destroy the world. We stand up and say, the the world is already being destroyed and all of us and all of you are feeling the effects of the destruction of sin in your lives. But there's a solution and it's God's solution. He did it through covenant by sending Jesus without us asking when we didn't even know that we needed Him. He sent Christ to us to save us from our sin, to save us from the destructiveness of of the sin that we have in our lives. If we will just surrender to Him, He will make us righteous and show us how to live righteously. Others will access covenant because we're willing to share. It starts with us. It starts with us. If we're not willing to admit that there's sin that needs to be removed, then how could we possibly stand and say, this is what God has done for me? If we're still living with the destructive nature of sin in our lives, we're not willing to admit it, admit our need for a Savior, then how will we ever stand and tell the world of how God has dealt with sin and set us free? We can't tell it because it would be a lie, right? So it starts with us. First, we surrender our lives to Christ. If you just take a minute... Maybe close your eyes so people can just really do business with God. If you're here this morning and you're, or you're watching online and you've never had an opportunity to surrender your life to Christ, to have the sin curse broken. It's already been broken in Christ, but we receive it by receiving Christ into our lives, by surrendering our lives to Him, by telling Him that He will be the Lord of our lives. If you're here, if you're watching and you've never done that before, I just want to encourage you right now In fact, if you're in the room, if you'd raise your hand, if you're watching online, I encourage you, would you literally record this? Like like tell somebody on on the live feed, I'm surrendering my life to Christ, or contact us and let us know. I see the hand. If you put your hand up, you can put it down. If there's anybody else, don't hesitate, don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. So then what about this? How about we are honest with God? If we've got something in our lives, if we're experiencing the destructive nature of sin in our lives, can we be honest before the Lord, honest with ourselves? Just say, God, I need you. God, I need you. I receive your gift of salvation. I receive what you have done for me so I can walk free. God, do it in me so I can tell others about what you've done. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online, I encourage you right now, be honest with the Lord. Do business with Him. Some some people may need to come to these altars. Some of you might need to make an altar right now where you're at in your own home or even pull over in the car and just do business with the Lord. 
This is not about you being ashamed. This is not about you making yourself better. This is about coming to the only one who can deal with your sin. And then let me ask you this. How many of us are willing to be vessels? Not only who have experienced the goodness of God and the removal of sin and, the destruct, and, and its destructive nature in our own lives, but how many of us are willing to be messengers for the Lord so that others can experience what we've experienced? If that's you here today, I want to encourage you to stand right now. God, we are standing because you are good. We are standing because you are faithful to your promises. We are standing because you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. We're standing because in Jesus Christ, you fulfill all the laws and all the requirements for our sin to be dealt with. We are standing because you have given us a new and a better covenant. We are standing because you have made a way to set us free from our sin. And God, we don't want to be only those who are saved and watch while others are perishing, while others try so hard, while sin Habits its way in our society while the ravages of sin destroy everybody around us. God, we want to be those who share the message of freedom and salvation and of the faithfulness of our God. So God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you deal with the sin in our lives? Would you cause us to be righteous messengers, righteous and faithful and true witnesses of what you have done for us? For the redemption of the world. In Jesus' name. Let's sing together.